These businesses have run the gambit. Not only have they been through two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam the War, Depression. they also had the hyperinflation events of Weimar Germany, because they are literally Germany. So it is just, they survived hyperinflation and they're getting wiped out or insolvent right now. Like that's how bad it is. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in for BCB episode 80. Our guest in this RIP session is Chris Alamo of Bitcoin Magazine. Chris has an engineering background and a profound passion for and understanding of Bitcoin and broader markets. He works full-time at Bitcoin Magazine as a spaces and podcast host, as well as a multimedia producer. Folks, this episode takes us back to the roots of this show, to the style with which we chat at the firehouse, a no-holes-barred, filter-off, popcorn rip session on a variety of topics both inside and outside Bitcoin. We discuss things in this episode such as digital property rights, the housing market, rocket science, the IRS's plans for Bitcoin, and why proof of work is the linchpin of the Bitcoin discovery. You can follow Chris on Twitter at ChrisAlamo6, that's also linked in the show notes. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar BTC, where, well, we talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk some shit. People, it is now open enrollment season. So if you are a Bitcoiner that has healthcare needs or is fed up with your current plan, check out our partner CrowdHealth at joincrowdhealth.com. You can utilize code BLUE to get a special offer. Blue Collar Bitcoin is brought to you by the one, the only, the esteemed CoinKite. Makers of the cold card, the open dime, the block lock, the new block lock micro, and a plethora of other plebworthy hardware and merchandise. If you're interested in sleeping like a well-fed koala bear with your Bitcoin secured behind military-grade Bitcoin security hardware fit for generational storage and protection, look no further. The cold card is the most trusted signing device or hardware wallet in the industry, and it's fit for cold storage newbie all the way up to sophisticated users. The Bitcoin protocol is the instantiation of digital property rights, but you aren't harnessing this self-sovereignty if you aren't holding your own keys. We encourage all our listeners to embark on the journey of self-custody. You can access all CoinKite products at CoinKite.com, and be sure to use promo code BCB for 5% off cold card purchases. Alrighty, enjoy this RIP session with Chris Alamo. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Chris, welcome inside the Kraken's Den. How are you, dude? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. You know, we almost called this show, actually... The Kraken's Den. Mm-hmm. That was it, man. That was one of the, the names we we threw around. I do think we chose the right uh, title, personally. Like, I think so, too. Kraken fucks pretty hard, but uh, Blue Collar Bitcoin just sends it. I used to drink uh, Kraken back in college, and that stuff messes you up, but it was a good time. <laughs> Wait, what is this stuff? I've never heard of this stuff. It's like a black like rum, or I, I, we got to look this up now, but it's it's strong stuff. It's potent. We need to start drinking Kraken on here. Yeah, that's what Four Loco switched, like, did a spin move into after they killed a bunch of young kids from uh, college. Four Loco. You guys oh, remember man. that stuff, man? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I just remember one of my buddies drinking four loco in a McDonald's parking lot, called it a McDarking lot on accident, <laughs> and it stuck for years. I haven't called a McDonald's parking lot anything different since. We do joke about the crack and it work a lot though. Like that's like the the name for Bitcoin. Uh, you work an overtime shift, you got some extra cash floating around. You know, you're working to feed the kraken. Yes, so, you are. Little homage to what this show was almost called, folks. I love it. Chris, tell us about your day, dude. Yeah, so uh, I work for Bitcoin Magazine as a multimedia producer. So uh, specifically dealing with a lot of video content coming out of Bitcoin Magazine on our YouTube, Rumble, Twitch, uh, you name it. I also help host a bunch of the Twitter spaces. So normally I'm the guy on the Twitter handle for that. And uh, yeah, just trying to help uh, grow adoption of Bitcoin, basically. That's my uh, day-to-day, basically. Hell yeah. We've uh, had a couple conversations with you. We went on your podcast a while ago, Amateur Investors. Uh, we've been on Bitcoin Magazine Spaces, um, and it's your turn to come on our turf here. Here's the plan for tonight, folks. A little different than usual format. We're going to basically go popcorn tonight. So each of us have some ideas or themes we might be interested in exploring. We'll start with one, then move to the next uh, we joked before going, we'll probably get through like two items in this hour. Yeah. I think, uh, Dan, what do you think? We should give the honors to Chris to start this off, I'd yes. say. What do you think? I think so. I think so. Chris, start us off. We have no clue where you want to go. You take you take the ball, put it on the tee, and launch it here. Where do you want to start? All right. Well, I'm going to specifically uh, bump it over to the IRS. So many Bitcoiners' favorite three-letter agency. I love talking about uh, the IRS. I think most <laughs> people do, to be honest. Uh, so they currently have a draft that came out, I believe this week on Monday, or at least that's when it was getting circulated around and had the watermark for, uh, the 17th. And it's for a draft of 10, uh, form 1040. And this is a change to digital assets reporting, obviously that encompasses crypto and Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, this will need Congress and Senate's approval still, but they're trying to push it in based on the wording to be encompassing of the 2020 tax regime. Uh, so basically, it's a form that you cannot leave blank. You have to check yes or no. So everyone in the U.S. would have to do this. You have to check yes if you've received digital assets as a payment, uh, received an award or reward, received digital assets as a result of mining, staking, or similar activities, received it from a hard fork, disposed of digital assets for properties or services, disposed of digital assets in exchange for another digital asset, sold the digital asset, transferred digital assets for free, wow. bona, bona fide gift, Pretty all inclusive. otherwise disposed... Yeah, uh, otherwise disposed of any financial uh, interest in a digital asset. Uh, and then things that don't require you to check yes. So there's three short things. Holding a digital asset in a wallet or an account. Transferring a digital asset from one wallet or account to that you own to another one. Or mm-hmm. purchasing digital assets using USD or real currency through any exchange, PayPal, or Venmo. Uh, so they're trying to ding a lot of people. Things that really stuck out on here was result of mining or staking. I know staking doesn't apply to Bitcoin as much, but definitely of mining. They want people to basically dox miners. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people that do uh, non-KYC mining for sure. Uh, giving it as an as a gift. So while the sender doesn't, uh, I guess when you're disposing of, or that's what they mean, getting rid of it, you have to report it as tax or getting rid of it. And then also the receiver of receiving a free bona fide gift. So, you know, these small lightning payments or anything like that, and then it wasn't included, but I'm assuming it's kind of wrapped up in there. If you're running a, a, a routing node or a lightning node and you're routing payments and you're receiving small of those sats, they're expecting you to dox that. 
so like I said, this has not gone through approval with Congress and Senate, but all of the wording was for tax year 2022. So that would be, you know, through December 31st of this year, obviously, uh, with the reporting date of April 15th is tr- traditionally mm-hmm. like the IRS reporting date. Uh, so this seems like something that they're trying to cram through. I don't know where this stands. Obviously, we're coming up to election day very shortly here in the States. Uh, I think this maybe is on the table and depending on who wins or what happens in uh, Congress and Senate, you know, after November 5th is what they're going to try and push for. But it's very, very interesting. So just so I have this straight and so we're all on the same page. So if you buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, store Bitcoin, you don't have to report that at all, assuming you haven't sold any and made any money on it because obviously they want to tax you on that. The thing that's more concerning and way more, you know, gray for everybody, especially people running lightning nodes, like how does that work as far as transmitting and receiving lightning? Did you get into that anymore? Any more detail on that? Because that seems like it becomes very murky because you're not actually receiving it. You're just becoming a transmitter or are a transmitter. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't clarify any of that, which is a little concerning for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's it seems receiving you know, or similar activities, I guess that's what it falls under. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know how that goes or hmm. how they want it reported or anything. Uh, like luck. I said, this hasn't gone through yet. And I hope it doesn't go through, honestly. Uh, I know that this just seems like a vast overreach, uh, but definitely seems like something a lot of people have been missing or have not been paying attention to. Yeah. I mean, in my view, n- no surprise whatsoever that this is coming down the pipeline. Um, yeah, maybe. It may be a little bit more exhaustive. I guess I'm not an expert to come on this, but but not much different from the expectation of having money in other asset classes. Yeah, I think I'll get labeled as a cuck by some people from saying this, but getting audited by the IRS seems far-fetched and uh, impossible until it happens to you. Yeah. So I don't know what uh, my advice is. It's either, it's either shut the fuck up um, or uh, plan to play by the rules. And if you're buying... KYC Bitcoin and you're planning to never pay taxes and you have a huge Bitcoin position, I think at some point in the future, someone may come knocking, but that's for you to decide how you want to proceed with. I think that's just, we're just stating kind of the facts. Um, And I guess the other comment I have on it is they're just starting to pay a ton more attention to this. The fake internet money is no longer looking quite so fake, gentlemen. Uh, we've got White House research and reports. We've got the IRS ramping up on it. 87,000 new IRS agents ready to fist your asshole when you make a, you know, forget the dot and I or cross a T on your tax return. So yeah, be aware. This is not a drill anymore. This is uh, a real asset class. And I think a lot of these policymakers and regulators are aware I think some of them are aware of where it may head and the potential it has, and it's going to accrue a ton of value, and Uncle Sam's going to want his. No surprise there. Yeah. Well, especially like we're, you know, we've had this discussion, Dan, on this podcast a couple of different times now where tax receipts are going down next year. Capital gains taxes are not Mm. going to produce. They're going to be, you know, expending tons more money rolling over this $9 trillion in bonds that are going to be at 4 to 5% right now equaling a like what is it 3x what they're paying in interest payments right now um it's gonna be rough to be uh you know uncle sam he's gonna be looking to turn everyone upside down and shake the pennies out of your pocket or the sats out of your node it's gonna be going from eating steak to table scraps and he's gonna get every single one of them but this doesn't i think this is another area we could explore here 
is <laughs> first hog reference of the episode. This is the essence of the slippery hog. You you regulate a version of an open source protocol in the year 2022 with no real understanding of where it may be going in six months, two years, 10 years, certainly beyond that. And this thing has the ability and the likelihood to morph into something in many ways unrecognizable on layers above where than where it is today, which is going to make regulating this thing extremely challenging, especially from like a fungibility tracking privacy standpoint. It'll be uh, very interesting though. It says, or other real currencies, obviously to, to purchase Bitcoin or digital assets. So what if El Salvador comes in and be like, well, it's technically our real currency for our economy. Mm. And then it's like, you know, it, it didn't specify, but it says using USD or other real currencies. And so that means using euro, yen, you know, if you're doing the exchange, you're obviously getting hit with the exchange rate of that. But like, it's definitely up for legalese to say, well, this is a real currency. Uh, and then that's a whole nother debate. And I'm not a lawyer and I, I don't know, but definitely very interesting to say the least of, you know, if you're going to try and hit us with all these things, well, then maybe Bitcoin's a real currency. I know that they don't want to classify it as that, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Could this be, will this be legal tender? in our lifetime. And if it is, what impact is that going to have on, you know, supposed tax implications that are in our head right now? And obviously jurisdictional movement and, and arbitrage is easier said than done, but will there be areas you can go on this planet where the tax implications are very different? I'm sure that will be the case. Yeah. Puerto yeah. Rico is technically one of them where you're not under the purview of the IRS with that because uh, they're not a state, but they're still like a territory, I guess. So uh, or just, or just all the Bitcoiners are going to move to Puerto Rico and just live on that <laughs> little island, build it up. Think about the game theory there, though. I mean, you've <laughs> got, let, let's just paint a picture of, you know, a, a bullish Bitcoin here. We got million dollar Bitcoin years, 2027. And you've got wealthy Bitcoiners uh, in this massive diaspora all over the world. And you suddenly open up the opportunity for them to come in and harvest a lot more of their their wealth because of your tax strategy, you're going to have a lot of money flowing in. I mean, this is obviously the what El Salvador is already hatching, but if the incentives are there and it's beneficial for an area, jurisdiction or a country, uh, you better believe that more disenfranchised, you know, second and third world entities are going to are going to bite and take that opportunity. I think the it's it's pretty obvious that at least now Texas, Wyoming, a lot of these states are positioning themselves to have that maybe it's like an El Salvador light, you know, like it's way easier for one of the three of us to decide, you know what, I'm going to Texas than it is to be like, you know, I'm going to cut cord and I'm going to El Salvador. That's a much bigger leap. Mm. I mean, we, I mean, we love talking about El Salvador, but I mean, the three of us know, like number one, like this is an entirely different country where the three of us are not very familiar with the actual laws there. Like how free are they really? How good is, uh, you know, Bukele really, these are uh, lawn darts that I'd prefer not to toss. Maybe you get much more freedom as far as the financial front, but there's other considerations as well uh, than just uprooting your family and moving to a country that, you know, 10 to 15 years ago was like the murder capital of the world. So, yeah, I think Wyoming, Texas, Idaho, those kinds of states are going to be, uh, and even those non-states like Puerto Rico, are going to be much more likely to change their laws in a way that's going to give the capacity for people to move there long before they start, you know, jumping out of the United States altogether. Although that's always on the table, especially when people have the ability to do it 
um, with their wealth intact, which is probably the biggest impediment to people immigrating to other countries in, you know, in the past for forever. While we're on this, we have to identify the fact that Bitcoin allows that sort of movement. You know what I mean? When we talk about Absolutely. how it's traced and tracked and transported, it's maybe the first asset that's really going to be impossible to implement certain capital controls on, right? It's, it's, a, it's a completely new ball game than any other way that you can store wealth. Yeah. The realistic way, I mean, if we're going to be that honest about like what the capacity of government is to take your Bitcoin, it really comes down to they can put you in a cage and they can put a gun to your head. So although it's very cute that we think, you know, and we, it's true, we can hide our money from them in perpetuity, but, but they can put you in a cage in perpetuity. So, I mean, yeah. there's a, there is that. Yeah. Bitcoin's fungible, but not Bitcoiners. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. We're but flesh. Back to the IRS knocking on your door. Chances are good you're going to cower like a simpy bitch when they do. So yeah, probably best to stay above water there. Wow. We, I feel like we... I just, I feel like we pretty, we cucked down pretty hard right there. We, we really need yeah, to recover. We, did. we just lost a huge percentage of our audience. <laughs> hey, we're just shooting straight, man. I, I, I have a good job, a good career and a family and a house that I like and family nearby. I'm yeah. Yeah. This, this parlays really well into the topic I wanted to bring up. And this is, I thought this would be fun to talk about with the two of you guys. And, um, this is a wide ranging open topic that we could, we could go on for a long time, but it's basically the overriding idea of conspiracy theories. So, I mean, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I was the kind of person who not only loved reading about these things, it's, it, it, I still do. It's always interesting to read about these theories and like how off the wall some of them can get. But I guess the one I'm really kind of pointing at is this giant, giant conspiracy that some people believe that this one world government is trying to form and these, you know, these disparate agents the the WEF all of these people are trying to coerce us all into this one world government this evil nazi-esque charade here's the thing i think this is very very similar to creationism versus darwinism like if you think about the way and and the reason this is so appealing to people is because if you want to believe that conspiracies like there's one giant conspiracy and these people are controlling the world that's very similar to creationism where and it's exactly it's comforting to people that someone's in charge Someone is figuring this out, even mm. though they may not think it's a good thing. They feel like there's somebody in control and this isn't just all chaos. And the other side of that, the counterpoint would be, this is all just chaos. This is, it's like Darwinism. It's literally survival of the fittest. It's a bunch of disparate groups all vying for control, failing, fucking it up, and then it all coming around again. So I guess what I'd really like to open this up to is let's discuss that. What, do you, what are your views on that? Do you think this is just chaos proliferating in the world? Or do we think that there really is some giant conspiracy, some people pulling puppet strings? Chris, you go first if you got something. <laughs> uh, there, there's lots of, I don't know. I guess it's kind of a combination of both, if, if I had to say. Like being an engineer, uh, you know, or my previous uh, degree and what I've done in the past is in engineering. I'm a chemical engineer by degree. And when we were doing chemical re reactions or trying to just create a product, you know, you're trying to basically use uh, math and science to create a product. And by doing that, it's very complex with heating, cooling, pressure, all these different things. Right. And it's basically like controlled chaos. You're, you're trying to create something. Um, 
And when you're doing that, it is very, very difficult to do, even at a small scale in the lab and then scaling it up to plant size production. Uh, so I was just in that small little niche environment of a plant of 100 people, and it was chaos. So, you know, yes, I guess there's people that would love more power and control. But at the same time, you're trying, to, you're fighting nature, like you're trying to fight nature to control everything. So right. while I do believe there's some people that would like that, like, it's difficult enough to create like a widget, like a pen, like think of how difficult and how many people it took to making yep. this pen. And yet, there's some people that think like, oh, we can control the whole world. It's like, it takes like hundreds or thousands of people to make this fucking exactly. thing. You think we're going to fucking control like 7.6 billion people? I think it goes back to, I don't know. This is, this is kind of like uh, weather predictions, right? Like you get, you can be pretty damn sure that tomorrow's weather prediction is going to be accurate because the amount of variables that are going to change in the period of time between now and tomorrow, pretty low overall. But now you extrapolate that out a week, a month, a year, 10 years. Do you, I mean, the amount of compute you would have to do in order to kind of predict that is every single variable that exists, like every atomic particle in that's existing in the earth and all of these different geothermal events that are going on, like impossible. I agree with you to a degree. People can plan, maybe think three, four steps ahead, but to plan something that is going to be an overriding conspiracy over a long period of time, say 50 to 100 years. That's like trying to predict the weather in 10 years. Like, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, I'll add one more point and then I'll let Dan go. But like, think of it like this. Like Paul Krugman said in 2005, like the internet's going to be a passing fad, like no more important than the typewriter. And now the dude has to use the internet to stay relevant. Like if he wasn't on the internet, we (laughs) wouldn't know who he is. I mean, the first iPhone came out in 2007 and that's only 15 years ago. And like, think of how monumental the iphone is in the app store and what it created and what it does and making smartphones do everything like everyone thought like oh you're gonna have a camera you're gonna have a calculator you're gonna have a a calendar you have all these like now you just have a fucking smartphone whether it's an iphone or not like you have a, a smartphone that can do it all so i think to your point it's very hard to predict even the the smartest and brightest minds i maybe uh that's given paul krugman too much credit i i don't think he's one of those but even the smartest minds it's difficult for them to predict 10 to 15 years. I mean, look at Michael Saylor in 2013. He's like, yeah, Bitcoin's just like a passing fad, not going to do that. And, you know, you you have to go through an experience to see what it would be used for. And I think even like Steve Jobs with creating the iPhone, everyone thought like, I always want my keyboard. I never don't want a keyboard. And then he created this and people are like, oh, fuck, I love this thing. I don't need a keyboard. Like, I don't know. That, that's just my two sats. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry, I took your thunder there. Oh, love it. Love this topic, Josh. This is something that Josh and I enjoy bouncing around in the locker room at work or at a meal. Um, Okay, so first, one thing I want to piggyback on is I could not resonate more with your statement that, in essence, people crave answers. They crave simplicity, right? They want to know what's going on. And so they generate worldviews and ideas and frameworks that give them answers. Not having a good answer is a very uncomfortable position. It's something, it's a journey I'm on in life right now. I grew up in a conservative religious context where I thought the world was quite ordered and very clearly one worldview was the right way to do it. Uh, In adulthood, I've journeyed away from that and that's in many ways fulfilling and life-giving, but it's also wildly uncomfortable. I think in a lot of things in life, the truest thing you can say is I have no fucking idea what's going on. Amen. And so when I think about complex world order conspiracy theory type shit. 
I think there's sort of three options for what's at play. We look at the world and we think this is a shit show. And guess what? Pretty much every homo sapien that's ever walked the face of the earth has thought that the world is a complete shit show. Our, our kids, their kids, every generation thinks it's fucking different this time and that the world's all fucked. This is just the human condition, right? So we look at that, that disorder, that chaos, and there's sort of three conclusions people make. The first one is that all the people, quote unquote, in charge are malevolent, evil people, right? They intentionally are hatching plans that are evil and misguided and creating this chaos and disorder. The second, maybe more common presupposition or conclusion is that these people are just total idiots. This is one of the most common ones within the, the Bitcoin religion, if you will, is that everybody in charge is a complete fucking idiot. Well, guess what? If you were put in charge of, of the chaos of ordering the species and just handed what came before you, by the way, you weren't here in 1910. Guess what? You're Fed chairman in 2022. You got to try to tape this thing together with sticks and bubble gum. These people are not idiots. I'm not saying there's not evil and bad people. I'm not saying they're not idiots, but by and large, I doesn't, I don't think that hits the mark. And then comes the third option. This is the more, more the way I see it is that the world is incredibly complex. People really don't know what to do. These solutions are almost impossible to enact. And this is compounded by the fact that the system's broken. If we're just talking about the monetary system, this is a decades, centuries long problem that these people have inherited. And so it's just the complexity of the issue that is causing us to suppose that everyone, quote unquote, in charge is an idiot or an evil person, which, I mean, cue Bitcoin here. This is why we need to fix things from the ground up. We need to realign incentives from the very bottom, which is the whole point of open protocols like Bitcoin. And the whole reason the three of us are so passionate about it is that it actually has a chance. Unlike the people in charge, it has a chance to reorder society in a meaningfully helpful way, in my view. Yeah. Something that's not corruptible from the baseline is the antidote to corruption at the top. I, I wholeheartedly believe. Uh, my best friend, we were just talking recently and we were calling when he was in high school, he got selected by one of the teachers to go to DC to basically recreate, um, like basically the, how Senate Congress and, you know, all of that works, like basically the U.S. government. And he went down and it was kids from all over the country. I think he said there was like about uh, 150, 200 people in total. And he actually got elected president. You know, you start off and they, they do icebreakers and all this. Anyway, he gets elected president and each person was given a role of like, oh, like, OK, so he's the president of the United States. Then like one person was representing Senate, Congress, Secretary of State, all this. And then everyone else was basically world leaders. And the way it was run was really cool that each of the world leaders was given papers of like what their demands were, but their demands are completely or maybe counter to the US or counter to their allying nations. Uh, like one kid was uh, the prime minister of Israel. And then another person was uh, the prime minister of uh, like Jordan and like all the surrounding countries. So you have the whole Middle East going on. Then you've got like someone that was representing the EU or various countries in the EU. And it was a cool experiment because he's like, yeah, everyone, he, he got elected president of the United States. And he's like, yeah, you think it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so cool. And then they just kind of like unleash hell on him. And he's like, you're getting bombarded with like your secretary of state's like, I got to talk to you. And of course, the teachers are making it interesting saying, hey, this just came on your desk. We need a decision now. And people are like yelling at him. And he just said, like, uh, it really shows perspective of like, it's the system being broken yes. and not so much individual people like you were pointing out, Dan, that 
you know, it's you're you're stuck by your incentives and you're overwhelmed with information and inputs. And obviously mm-hmm. you have friends and alliances and, you know, they were they were incorporating in ways of like, oh, your VP tells you to do this. And like, you know, by not doing what he or she says, you fuck over this country, but like you're in the same government as them. So like you're kind of forced into doing that. And then, you know, oh, well, when you fuck over this country, then they're not going to trade you cheap goods. So then like, right. you know, it's this whole second or effects. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This whole mess of everything going on. And he said it was a real eye opener. He's like, he's like, I definitely give more respect to politicians where it's definitely easy to punch up or, or to punch on them, basically. Uh, but yeah, just it points out that the system is broken. And uh, ultimately, they, they didn't go down the rabbit hole. This was years ago. Uh, I don't even think Bitcoin was around when he actually did this. But um, yeah, it just points out the system is definitely broken. And, uh, you know, we're trying to build exactly what, like what you said from the ground up to build a whole new system. For sure. Dan, what do you got? All right. All right. Um, I want to talk about the housing market and I want to start by just divulging some math I did today on my house. And I'm going to go ahead and share numbers. I'm going to be transparent here. These numbers aren't going to surprise based on what Josh and I do for a living. But what I want to do is explain how much different buying a house in my subdivision is between today and 2018. I bought my house in 2018. Okay. So here's the math on this. And then we're going to talk about broader housing market implications. And let's take it down to the individual and talk about how it matters for, for wage earners and people that aren't, you know, rolling in it. Sure. So I bought my house in 2018 for 235 grand. Okay. Based on my estimates in the area I live today, that house would go for around 320 based on comparables in my subdivision. I feel pretty pretty comfortable with that, having done some research today. Um, we're going we're gonna to assume 20 down. I know a lot of Bitcoiners wouldn't do that, but just we'll go, we'll get out of PMI and go 20 down. Okay. Um, my, my interest rate that I have is 3.27%. So my mortgage payment, this is without taxes, which by the way, percentage-wise are some of the highest in the entire country where we live. <laughs> um, it's a, my The rest of my payment exceeds the amount of my mortgage for anyone that uh, wants to know how dramatic it is. But we're just going to talk mortgage here. My mortgage payment uh, is eight around 820 bucks for a 30-year fixed mortgage. If I was to buy, if I was to sell this house today to somebody for 320000 which we'll talk and maybe the housing market will drastically correct it, right? It likely will. But at today's going rate for a 30-year fix, which I look is 7.24%. That mortgage payment is 1744. It is well more than double what my mortgage payment is. And that's that's excluding tax. That's excluding that. We're just talking mortgage. We're just we're just talking mortgage payment. It is it would be more than twice as expensive to own my house right now four years after I bought it. Uh, the math was even more dramatic than I was expecting. It's got huge implications. Like the type of, I could probably I could probably still afford this house, but for a lot of people, they would be unable to afford the house they're currently living in, right? It's just gotten so much more expensive. And then the other factor that it makes me consider is just how unwilling I'm going to be to exit this agreement. Like at this interest rate, at the price I paid, like the the reason for me to leave and sell. So now we're talking about two reasons why the market has the potential to lock up, right? Is that it's gotten just so much more expensive. And then with interest rate expense, like who's going to let go of their house? 
I was in the paramedic room yesterday. I was on the ambulance and in the background, it was MSNBC power lunch. They had some housing expert on and he, he, the word that came out of his mouth, I wrote it down or this phrase was, there's no option, but a hard landing for housing at this point. Thoughts on the housing market guys. Cause it's, uh, it's pretty unreal yeah. how quickly it's, uh, changed. Yeah, those I haven't run those numbers on my house. Um, if I did, it would be staggering, just like it is for you. Like the the thought that if I walked into this place, paid probably fifty to hundred grand more than I paid for it in twenty twenty, and then had to deal with seven point two five percent, and like I I don't think I would do it. I I know for sure that I won't be. I'm not even considering moving, even if I wanted a different house because of those numbers that you mentioned. And in my mind, it seems completely obvious that something has to give. Like these. People are losing their jobs. Like the the economy's rolling over right now. There's going to be probably foreclosure. I mean, I don't think that it's going to be a complete catastrophe for housing like it was in 2008 and nine. But there's absolutely no way that this can perpetuate. It's just incredibly crushing for anyone that wants to yeah. go buy a house right now. Right. Like I I just don't see how this can continue. Like who's going to be the next buyer? Right. One thing I want to throw in because we went through the specific math because there's someone sitting here going. You spend eight hundred and twenty dollars a month. No, I spend like seventeen, eighteen hundred a month ba- based on if you had taxes, home insurance, all that other stuff for my escrow payment. But in this new scenario, now this person is going from in my situation spending let's say eighteen hundred a month to now spending approaching three grand. That is a huge, huge deal for the average wage earner, right? Someone that's making between let's say. Forty and one hundred forty thousand dollars. That's a monthly jump. That's really, really significant, especially for someone that's like already close to redlined. Right? You've right. got someone renting an apartment somewhere for twenty three hundred bucks. That's like, hey, I want to buy a house. Well, you're going to be buying a freaking shanty. Well, right. And most financial planners will recommend something like twenty percent of your, you know, gross income goes to your. Is it gross or net? I can't remember now off the top of my head. But anyway, twenty percent. And so, three thousand dollars to be twenty percent of your income is very unlikely for most people. I mean, I don't know what the average wage is right now, maybe 80 grand. So if you have a wife, maybe if you're lucky making 160, you're going to have a hard time keeping that under 20% so that you can actually save some money to retire someday and not work until you're 85 years old, being a Walmart greeter, you know, and thinking about putting a pistol in your mouth every day. Right. And this is, before I hand it to you, Chris, this is just what this does is it ties up cash flow. You're just going to have way more people that, that need this, need a house or or choose to enter a house they probably shouldn't and their cash flow is not going to be freed up. I think that's my biggest warning to the, the listenership. I don't know what the answer is here. And especially for the younger guys we work with, this is a predicament. But I don't, I don't know in what way, shape or form, but no matter what place you're living and where you lay your head at night, you need to have free cash flow to feed the Kraken and do some other things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was just running some quick numbers, Dan, off that. So if we're assuming eighteen hundred for easy math, and we're going up to three grand now as your payment as well, that's a sixty-six percent increase. Mm. And if you're dividing that from twenty eighteen, like when you said you moved into now twenty twenty two, let's just call it four years, that's sixteen point five percent year over year inflation rate on housing. Yeah, I know that that had peaked more in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two because of locking up demand and printing a bunch of money. So I get that it was come more in the last 18 months to 24 months. Uh, but still, I mean, 16% or 16.5 year over year inflation in housing alone, right. for purchasing a house is that, that's Staggering. a phenomenal return 
Yeah, that's a phenomenal return. If you think the S&P 500 averages 9% a year before all the craziness of COVID, like it, it's it's slipping away from the mm. average earner, or average earner to be able to buy a property or a home for themselves. Just to throw this in, I was listening to somebody, can't remember who the other day, but a lot of these investment banks have been buying up properties in mass over the last four or five years. Just single family homes being bought up by Goldman Sachs and uh, uh, BlackRock, a couple of, for example. Um, wouldn't it be kind of, I mean, nobody wants to see the regular person get crushed by the housing market here, but it would be kind of delicious to watch those investment banks get absolutely clobbered over the head when this thing just turns around on them. I don't see how it's not going to. I mean, like significantly. I'm no expert at this in this arena, but just looking at your own behavior, like we are the buyers and the sellers. And what are the incentives telling you? They're telling me, stay put. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be waiting this out. And I think there could be wisdom in doing that. Although there's... It's dangerous. Sitting on the sideline is dangerous too. That printer fires back up, things turn the other way, and the circus yeah. starts, the clown noses go back on, and this thing could just keep going up 16% a year. It's it's, it's hard yeah. to know what the solution is. We're operating on one ring of the circus right now, and it could they could fire the other rings back up anytime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chris, what else you got? You got another, uh, another topic for us? Yeah, so I, I'll go one more, maybe one more doom and gloom for each of us. Or I don't know your topics, <laughs> but I have one more doom and gloom, and then I'll end on a, on a high note. Dude, this is a bear market, man. We're doing doom and gloom all fucking day. Doom and gloom all day. So uh, this one I, I call this like fiat house of cards is falling down. So, you know, pivoting from more of the uh, housing market over to our friends over in, in Europe. Uh, so Germany, there was a company, a uh, German construction company that has been around 125 years uh, and it's currently insolvent. There's another German confectionery manufacturer that was around for 130 years and is now insolvent. A German automotive supplier that was around for 156 years and it's insolvent. And then 170 years for a German soap manufacturer. So what was the significance of, of all these? Obviously, all of them have been operating a business over 100 years. Um, but they went all insolvent within 24 hours of each other. So this report came out on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, to point it out, like Germany is the powerhouse of manufacturing hub in the EU. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like lifting the debt of the pigs or the pig nations, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. So going a little bit macro here. Uh, as of right now, uh, Christine Lagarde, everyone's favorite central banker, is saying that she wants anti-separationist of the EU. So she wants policies that keeps the EU together. Right. Germany is the powerhouse of the EU economy. They are literally a manufacturing hub. They, uh, you know, they export the most. They have the most amount of fiat currencies piling into that nation. When you have businesses that have been running for, I mean, you gents, you're running a, what an LLC here. You know, I, I've dabbled in it. You know, running a, a small business is, is difficult. These businesses have run the gambit. Not only have they been through two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam the War, depression. they also had the hyperinflation events of Weimar Germany because they are literally Germany. So it is just, they survived hyperinflation and they're getting wiped out or insolvent right now. Like that's how bad it is. They survived hyperinflation. Like let's put that into perspective. The German mark looks like a shit coin, like, <laughs> like going parabolic and, or, you know, collapsing at least. And they survive that, and this is what wipes them out. So, like, like try to wrap your minds around that. Like, operating a business for 100 years, and these four businesses that have been around over 100 years, longer than most people, anyone on the planet's been alive, and they're going out of business all within 24 hours of each other. 
Yeah, and it also didn't seem like there's any common denominator between them. They're all very different businesses. Yeah. There's no, you know, it's not like they're in the same industry and they all they had some cascading problem in that industry. Well, guys, I mean, it seems quite obvious to me, and I know this is where you're going with this, but like we're coming out. I think one way to think about where rates are headed right now is we're moving towards a more realistic cost of capital. Like if, if it, you know, I know it's still fiat and all this stuff, but if you think about how much should money cost, we're moving closer to reality, right? On rates. And we've been living in a world where that has been totally distorted for an incredibly long period of time. I mean, companies to stay competitive, to stay afloat, have been incentivized to run and run at redline to right. lever up to their freaking eyeballs. And now all of a sudden the bandaid is coming off really quickly and it's tearing tissue. It's coming off so fast and they are having to reprice their entire strategy on a new cost of capital way more suddenly than they were expecting. And it, that, that's why it's not surprising to me. It's not only in the financial realm, like they probably had to lever themselves up to be competitive, right? But they also did just-in-time delivery of everything. So they don't have any supply on hand. They don't have everything is just in time. And this whole COVID thing probably put a huge wrench into that. Now, on top of that, you pile on the fact that you have to re-up their debt. They can't afford to make minimum payments at, let's just assume their rates are similar to the mortgage rates we talked about. They were at 3% a couple of years ago. Now they have to re-up it at 7 It's not possible for them. And they're bankrupt. And you know they're they're done. I mean, those two things in and of themselves could easily do it. Probably the both. And, and and the worst thing is Germany's like, you know, I know Gre stealing a line from Greg Voss. He's like, yeah, they're the, the best crack house on the street. So like, you know, the Portugal's, Ireland's, Italy's, Greece, and Spain are going to get clobbered because they're the ones that are propping up the debt of these bad countries. Right. And Germany has a fuck ton of bad debt right now. We're, we're seeing it like in real time. I think the real question is, and I'm here, I'm interested to hear your opinions on this. How long can the EU hold together with this kind of a situation? Like, how long are people in Germany going to be okay with stringing along these other countries that are simply not performing? They're, they are literally dragging dead bodies, you know, and they have to keep dragging them through a swamp and they just can't, they can't let them go. Like, when will they relinquish it? It, it is an absolute mess. All these different incentives going on, all these different governing bodies going on. It reminds me of like what happens in a family when like a patriarch or matriarch dies and you've got all these different siblings. It's like Joey spent 78 grand six years ago on blah, blah, blah. I deserve this. You know what I mean? And, and, and everybody kind of starts squabbling and it starts falling apart because everybody is in a different position. There's different needs on how to bail out different uh, countries. And, and at the same time, those voting publics want the same treatment. Like Italy's going to get all this and we're not right. If you're the Germans, um, mm -hmm. it just, without being an expert, it seems so messy and so much more, com I mean, it is so much more complex than what's going on here stateside. Even just thinking about uniting the EU the way it is now, like the, the states are all fairly similar. Like we all have the same culture for the most part. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit different from Florida to California, but we're not talking about Italy versus Sweden or, you know, a different language, a different culture. You know, everything is entirely different and trying to unite all these different, completely different people who all had their own independent currencies for a very long time prior and then deciding we're just going to ball them all together and create this giant block of countries that's all going to cooperate economically. That's just doesn't seem like something that's tenable for a long period of time. 
especially when they're so far uh, aside each other as far as their financial condition. And, and, and then you add an energy crisis, which right. is r probably the impetus for a lot of the disparity and struggle. And when, you know, back to my point before, when one starts to fall and needs all this help, it's not fair to the others, but what are you supposed to do? Just stand there and let the, you know, let the thing suffocate. It's a back to complex solutions. <laughs> Lagarde's job is not easy. Yeah. And sometimes you got to take Yeller out back. You got to take Yeller out back and put a bullet in his head sometimes, you know, it's unfortunate. Is that Italy in this scenario or who are we talking <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. It could be, it, I'm not going to name any names, you know, Yeller could be whoever you think he is. As Italian heritage, it's Italy. We, we could say it's Italy. Yeah. You know, I, I approve the message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good topic. It's a mess. All right. I've got another one for you guys. So Elon Musk, always something to talk about with this guy. He's uh, an intriguing character always. So I think the most interesting thing he's been up to lately is obviously we all know he's uh, taken over Twitter. Maybe, maybe this day, maybe this week he is, maybe next week he's not. So there's been that going on. But the more interesting thing in my mind is his Starlink satellite constellation. He's been working on this for years. Um, what SpaceX has done with rockets is amazing. And because there's not enough customers to actually use the things, they're like, well, fuck it. We'll build a satellite constellation because this is going to be useful. Well, now this has put him at odds with the White House because now a single private citizen has the ability to control Internet over the entire world, which is really fucking cool, really Bond villain cool. And um, it's interesting that a single guy is now in a position where nation states, the superpower of the world, is intimidated by this guy. And now they're talking about, you know, investigating his business dealings with Twitter, uh, censoring him potentially with SpaceX, with their Starlink satellites, telling him what he can and can't do with it. But it's kind of hilarious to me that they're they're in a position where they're having to beg, borrow and steal from a billionaire as a superpower country and say, please, may I, can you please do this for us? Because we're asking nicely. So SpaceX has been funding Ukraine's internet to the tune of $80 million so far. And he basically said, Pentagon, you need to start anting up because we can't just have SpaceX continue to pay for this into perpetuity. But he ended up relenting and saying, fine, I'll do it because I, I'm sure he got a shitload of political pressure. But I, um, I'm curious what you guys think about the situation, not only with Starlink, but with Twitter. I'll take it first. Um, I think it's very interesting, uh, the position that I guess the U.S. finds themselves in that you know we're an economic superpower and to your point we're like kowtowing or begging a billionaire to to do what they wanted to do with all the resources we have we couldn't the u.s couldn't compete in the free market for space and i know there was a running joke with trump doing a space force and all that <laughs> and yeah. um you know he like quite literally outcompeted them i know a lot of people say well he got a lot of subsidies and, and that may be true but just what he's been able to do is is an engineering feat in and of itself, which is really, really cool. Uh, it's funny. I actually watched the, there's a documentary, I think it's on Disney Plus is where I saw it, about the Falcon Heavy launch. Josh, mm -hmm. you may be able to tell me when the first one went up. Um, but it is- February 2018. Yeah, dude, yeah. Josh is a huge, <laughs> huge space nerd. Freaking loser. No, I'm just yep. kidding. It's incredible. Like the documentary yeah, was- Awesome. I cried. Um, what it makes me think about is how quickly this shit moves, though. SpaceX was founded in what? 08? 2002, I, I think. Oh, earlier than that. 
Okay, so it kind of meanders along for a long period of time. Tons of failures. They went through the rocket failures. And now, I mean, the cadence with which they're launching, the success rate with which they're launching, and the size of these rockets they're putting up in the air and, and, the, and the load that they can carry, the improvements have been, dare we say, exponential. And it's, orders, it's just I'd say in, orders of magnitude, yeah, easily. Where is it going to be in 10 years, dude? It's going to be so far ahead. It's it. Watching that documentary was just another example for me of how quickly this shit moves. You blink. You haven't paid attention to it in a couple of years, and they're doing something completely different with with totally, totally different implications. The idea of global internet, anywhere, anytime, any place, is a huge gap right now. You could say, based on where we're Dude, at in a lot of places, about, and it's think about the implications there. Like you read something like the Sovereign Individual, and mm. then you see things like SpaceX putting up internet satellites that can, you know, feed the entire world high speed internet. And you think about all those places, then we talk about, now you dovetail in the fact that Bitcoin mining allows energy to, to be prosperous in places it could never be before. And then you multiply that by the fact that now we have internet on a worldwide scale available anywhere. And the ability for nation states or internet nations to exist just leveled up mm. like right now. I mean, it, it really is playing out in a way that I could see it going that direction where people people really do have communities of other like-minded people and maybe don't live in the exact same place but are in a way a nation together online. Yeah. You're right. That is sovereign yeah. individual thesis 101 in a dramatic way. It's it's like the next leap in sovereignty, you could say in a lot of ways. Dude, and the fact that it's not controlled at least not yet by any government. There's no government that's going to just shut it down. And I don't know exactly how these nodes work with SpaceX or who they have to interoperate with on the ground to actually feed this internet service back and forth. But it is encouraging to see this kind of stuff happening. And there's competing companies that are starting to put up satellites to have competing constellations as well. So they have some redundancy. Yeah. It's uh, very interesting. I forget what the, the law is uh, where like emerging nations or, or emerging countries they get to skip technology levels. So like, you know, mm. instead of putting up, for perfect example, in, instead of putting up like, you know, uh, telephone internet communications, yep. yeah, telephone poles and all that, you can just skip right to like Wi-Fi and using like satellites and stuff like this and linking up with Starlink. I, I forget what the law is, but it, it like helps emerging nations. I don't want to say catch up and pass, but it definitely helps them like bridge the gap of technologies. Like they don't have to do antiquated technologies. They can just use the latest and greatest stuff. And it helps really level up their society faster with less waste. And let's um, cue Bitcoin again here. I just tweeted something from a, a, an Elise Clean quote. Um, Bitcoin is fintech for poor people. Guess who's probably, in, in my view, potentially never going to have a banking account the way we know it today? Disenfranchised folks in the third world. That this is their first opportunity, their first introduction to financial infrastructure. They're going to leapfrog the entire banking system as we know it today or have the potential to do that. That's so yeah. dr dramatic and the addressable market on that and the implications on that are, are mind-blowing. But guess what's going to... The only way that's going to work at broad, reliable scale is with a protocol that can't be fucked with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at it, look at El Salvador. Like, literally, Bitcoin was banking more people in a year mm. than local banks and, and banks were for... 30, 50 years, so however long it was. Yeah. Like Bitcoin did more in a year's time to bank the unbanked 
than local banks, which is absurd. Before we get off the topic of rockets, I think this is kind of an interesting analogy. What Elon Musk did for rocket technology, because honestly, it had stagnated since the 50s and 60s. All of the all those big step change improvements happened into the 60s, early 70s. It had kind of petered out and nothing happened after that. It was basically just, you know, the the big Boeings and all, you know, ULAs of the world did as little as they had to do to just collect as much taxpayer money as they could. So in a lot of ways, they're similar to the monetary system in the United States as it is now. They were functional at a base minimum level, didn't do anything extra because they didn't have to. And then suddenly a competitor came along that upended everything, flipped the table over and started really innovating really quickly. And now those old aerospace companies are basically fucked. Like the only reason they exist anymore is because they Congress lobbies and gets them contracts. There's no reason for them to be around. They can't compete on cost. And that's kind of where the Fed is as far as Bitcoin's concerned, in my mind. Mm. Yeah, one could say, Josh, that Elon Musk is to rocket science what you and I are to the fire service. Yeah, um, pretty just- much exactly <laughs> where I was going with that thought, yeah. <laughs> Some firemen crawling in their skin. The high taxes go towards the best firefighters in, in the country, right? Is that <laughs> yeah. what, the way, that's the way it is? It is kind of funny that we bitch <laughs> about the taxes while we literally get paid by them. <laughs> May or may not be the origin of the sloppy hog reference. May or may not. Um, All right. I'll throw something in here and then we'll let you finish, Chris. I think it parlays well on this. I want to read two tweets. I want to go back to kind of first principles basics. And the reason for me thinking about this was the Pish Lowry conversation on BTC 098. Great conversation. Which is... The most, I'll say the most important Bitcoin conversation I've heard in in a long time. Uh, I don't know what the time frame is, maybe six months to a year. This conversation is so important. We have a select list of resources on our website and we just added it. it. We felt like it was so significant and in many ways, such like a simple but original idea. So here's where I'm going with this. I'm going to read two tweets, one by Alex Gladstein and one by Vijay Boyapati. Here's Gladstein's tweet. The fact that Bitcoin gives anyone property rights without the need for state enforcement or identification is a simply massive historical innovation that will take many decades for humanity to properly appreciate. Okay, the second tweet from Vijay Boyapati. Bitcoin provides for the first time in history the expectation of exclusive control without requiring an apparatus of coercion. In a way, it provides a sort of super property right. What I think this conversation between Pish and Lowry did for me was emphasize once again for the umpteenth time, Bitcoin is an innovation in digital property rights. But what actually enforces that property right into perpetuity indefinitely for years, decades, and centuries? And Lowry's thesis basically that you need real power hierarchies, not just abstract power hierarchies. You need a digital protocol that is somehow tethered to real world power, that being watts in the case of Bitcoin. That is the innovation. And this is like one of those ideas that you think clicks, but it's taken years to click for me. And I know there's people in the audience that that have been down this rabbit hole and this, they get this. And there's many others that don't yet understand the implications of this. I would say listen to this conversation between Jason Lowry and Preston Pish and then 
We'll also link uh, Lynn Alden's piece on proof of stake, I think is maybe the best exhaustive rundown of why it's so important that proof of work be tethered to the real world. Did you guys listen to that conversation with those two? Are there any fresh thoughts or, or themes that are kind of coming back to the service for you? Because they really hit me hard this week when I listened through that. Yeah, uh, a great, great episode. I agree. A lot of great topics in it. The one that really stuck out for me was when Jason Lowry was talking about domestication and mm. how it weakens uh, creatures. Mm-hmm. So specifically, he's like, yeah, you can take a boar and you can breed it to become a pig. You can take a wolf and you can breed it to become a dog. And then he, you know, obviously looped it in with humans. Like, you know, you can see, you've seen what we've done going off the gold standard since 1971. And shout out to WTF happened in 1971. I mean, they do it more justice of like how everything's gone wonky since coming off the gold standard and, and how we've, I guess, domesticated humans or this new iteration of humans. I hate to say that we're going like techno humans or like what the WEF says, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen the AI generation of we're going to uh, human to humanoid to like yeah. basically all plugged in technology. But uh, I think that's a, a great point. And that was another thing that I took away from that conversation for sure. I can't even pick a part of that conversation that I, off the top of my head, but it, it overall it was all encompassing of explaining on a really, really granular detail about why proof of work is so incredibly important. And as far as commenting on people being domesticated, I think it's just as much of the money as it is the fact that we've stopped letting Darwin have any real say about humanity. Like we all wear seatbelts, you know, (laughs) like maybe seatbelts really fucked us up. Maybe some people should have gone through the window. (laughs) Um. Yeah, yeah, we are We're very tamed down. It's a beautiful thing in a lot of ways in terms of the way we we love and care for the species um, right now. But it comes with a reframing of how we're made up. And yeah, people are giant, giant wusses, probably ourselves included. You know, if they think about Neanderthal, what they had to do to survive. You see a grown man riding his bicycle, right? Like not, you know, doing 50 miles an hour on it, just lollygagging around the neighborhood wearing a helmet. What do you got? Do you mean? Do you think about that person the way you think about somebody driving around wearing a mask by themselves? Like I have no respect for a grown adult wearing a helmet on a bicycle. Like it just bothers me <laughs> on a fundamental level. Or have some hardcore cyclists who like sustain some injuries that are like this guy's never ridden a bike. Also, do you ever just want to hit those groups of bicyclists that are out on a Sunday like wearing their spandex suits? Just want to hit them because they're taking up the entire road. By the way, they're, they're, we can tell you from firsthand experience as medics, people sustain injuries on the roadway, dude. They're going at high speed. They're weaving through traffic and they're always pissed at the motorists as though they belong there wearing their, yeah. their spandex. I just want, I didn't think I was going to go off about bicyclists today. But. That's our second part of the audience we <laughs> lost tonight. Is anybody that's a legitimate road biker is like, fuck these guys. <laughs> they have no respect for my, my love, my craft. Josh, in your defense, I haven't worn a helmet in since I was like eight. So, Me neither. You know, I, I don't want a helmet either. I'm on a bike. Yeah. Unless I'm, and I understand if you're doing 30 miles an hour on a road bike. Yeah. You should probably wear a helmet. But if you're just on a, you know, 10 speed bike on a, on a gravel trail, like, come on. You don't need a helmet. You're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, to close this out, before we hand it to you to, to go back to the the topic of proof of work or for proof of stake, I, I mentioned it a minute ago, but the more I'm in this space, the more I'm thinking about, okay, what problem is this actually solving? Because if it's better solved by a database or a more centralized system, you're going to be op- obsoleted. We're, we're solving base layer human value transfer. 
one of the, one of the most fundamental forms of human language. You could argue in some ways the most fundamental. How is whatever's purporting to solve that problem going to hold up for a long, long fucking time? We are not talking a few years. We're, we're not just talking our lifetime. What is going to have the chops to do that? And he, he talks in that, in that podcast about exogenous versus en- endogenous accountability, basically is the way I would put it. And if everything is internal, right, if everything's endogenous, and it's, it's relying on these abstract power hierarchies, at some point or another, it's going to be manipulated. You need a tether to the outside, an exogenous connection connected to some sort of physical power hierarchy. We have a nonviolent form of that in watts and in energy. That is the discovery of Bitcoin. That is the whole point of this. And it is part of the reason why many Bitcoin maximalists are so passionate and so ardent because there really is to solve this main problem. If you want to fucking transfer kitty pictures, we're having a different discussion. But if we're talking about underpinning the global financial system in a new, more decentralized, inclusive, empowering manner, we're going to need some external connection. And that is to real world energy. This conversation, I just closed by saying it hit me like a ton of freaking bricks. Yeah. Close us out, Chris. Uh, all right, so we, we 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 it's definitely bear market vibes in here. We we saying all the problems in the world. Uh, I want to say in this week alone. So I'm just going to list these couple things that are awesome in the space. And honestly, at work, we cannot keep up with the amount of changes in building. I know building bear markets are for building, but like perfect example, like Peach Bitcoin. Uh, they were at Bitcoin Amsterdam. I know they released their alpha. It was cool seeing people use the mobile app to do P2P non KYC exchange of cash for Bitcoin. Lily Wallet is another desktop app. I'm still a Sparrow maximalist. I know you guys love Sparrow as well. Love it. Uh, but it's cool to see another desktop wallet. That's awesome. It can be used to export to Blue Wallet, Caravan, or Bitcoin Core. The downside to it, I was messing around with it, is you have to pay for the multi-sig feature. So Sparrow kind of still reigns true in my heart. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this video recently, this week on Bitcoin Twitter of Keeper Wallet. It was on at TabConf. Someone had a cold card, a ledger, and a tap signer. And in a hundred, in a minute and 40 seconds, they set up a multi-sig. Obviously, wow. the devices were already set, like their ledger and cold card. Right. They had put their seed words down. But in a minute and 40 seconds on a mobile phone, they set up a multi-sig vault with using NFC for the tap signer, NFC for the cold card, and wired connection for the ledger. So a two or three multi-sig wow. in a minute and 40 seconds is pretty incredible when you think about like, you can't set up a bank that fast. I don't think you can write a check that fast and like, Put it like like you. There's so many transactions with the bank that you can't do in a minute and forty seconds. Get Guinness World Records on the horn here, Jesus. Oh shit. Yeah, exactly. It it was insane. Uh, another one is uh, uh, the Jam app. It's uh, Join Market created a, a graphical user interface for those people that don't know. There's kind of three debt main coin join implementations. So there's Wasabi, S- uh, Samurai, and Join Market. Join market is the most decentralized, meaning that there's a team working on it, but it's fully peer-to-peer. You're basically exchanging UTXOs. Mm-hmm. Samurai and Wasabi are coordinators that you have to enter in in order to coin join or obfuscate your UTXOs. Join market was the best in sense of like there's less uh, attack vectors. Like there's a team for Samurai and Wasabi. The uh, join market guys are very anonymous, and it runs decentralized, meaning that like. Uh, you can go and, and shut down basically uh, Samurai or Wasabi's coordinators, basically the servers right. they run on. But Join Market's truly decentralized. 
So meaning they finally added graphical user, user interface instead of being command line, which I don't know that about you guys. That makes a big deal for I'm me, not man. As tech, yeah. I, I'm not as tech deal. savvy. And it's, it's a clean UX, uh, like your graphical user interface for it. And uh, definitely something that I want to experiment. I've experimented with both Wasabi before they went with chain analysis. I, I, we yeah. don't need to get in the nuance of that. Really and I've also messed with Samurai because they're so easy with Sparrow, but really, really cool. And then as Teco, I, I got a demonstration today on basically you can buy a voucher, um, non-KYC. So you can pay cash to buy a voucher to get non-KYC Bitcoin. So uh, as Teco, so A-Z-T-E dot C-O dot com or dot C-O, you can buy vouchers non-KYC. It's their way of routing around. They're not an exchange. You're basically buying just a gift card or the voucher that has sats on it. So very, very cool. You can do it in a non-KYC manner. And that was just this week alone. There, I literally can't keep up week to week with the number of changes of apps, of desktop, uh, wallets, like all these different implementations and improvements. Obviously, we've got Fediment in the background. Uh, Taproot's been about a year, so we're see- starting to see the implementations of that. Taro was just launched. Like the list goes on and on, gents. Exciting. I know I, I like, you know, it's drinking from a fire hose, but a lot of cool shit uh, going on in the space. And, you know, I do this full time and I, I literally cannot keep up with everything that's going on. So yeah. I don't know if there's any comments there that you guys want to bring up. I think what's really compelling for me in this bear market is is price and fundamentals are not connected. You have hash rates up 45% while price is down 60%. We've got an increase of reachable nodes on the network during a 60% price cutoff. Dan, we're so lucky we didn't buy those fucking miners, man. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we are. We, we got taken out to the freaking woodshed. Oh my God. We, we would have fucked up so bad. Thank God we didn't do that. Is it bottom for miners now? Do you buy yeah, them now? Well, I'm seeing they're pretty cheap. I yeah. think it might be the time <laughs> to buy miners, man. But we were talking about it when these, you know, S19s were at like 12K and, uh, you know, the price of Bitcoin. I, I saw 14.5 and they were like crazy. Dude, yeah. Like if we would have bought point. those, we would have taken a fucking bath of all lifetime, man. <sighs> yes, we would but, have. <clears throat> you know what? This this bear market feels a lot like 2019 to me right now. We've been sit- sitting stagnant for a long period of time. Unfortunately, <laughs> in 2019, Right after that happened, we dropped to three and then we started seeing it recover and go back to, you know, 70 grand. But just hang in there, man. DCA continue to, you know, just stay above water. Don't get yourself leveraged, as we always say. And uh, oh, one thing I've been playing around with, I switched my node to uh, start nine trying embassy OS and uh, shout out to those guys. It's been pretty seamless. It's still catching up to uh, it's redownloading the blockchain right now. So I haven't done any transactions with it or anything yet but so far super easy to, to deploy very nice looking gui um try it out if you if you don't have a node try an embassy os by start nine yeah um exciting exciting time price and fundamentals are divorced from one another and when you when you do really think about this shit man reachable nodes going up lightning capacity going up fediment tarot rolling out there's so much happening and there's so much being built to level up the next go round. But man, it is hard to convince people at this stage. And it's why I've said before, like, unfortunately, as much as it hurts, you're just going to need to wait for price to go parabolic again for your phone to start ringing. And then that's your op- that's your next opportunity to get through to a lot of people. But uh, in the meantime, we're D- DCA and stacking the shit out of Have you seen these people uh, on? T- I've seen some people on Twitter talking shit about DCAing. Everybody that's DCA'd for the last two years is down. Well, no duh. We're at the bottom of a bear market. I don't understand that. If you're averaging into an asset that you think has tremendous long-term upside and potential, 
and you know from past experience that your human behavior has gotten in your way of buying it at the proper price, how can you argue against somebody averaging into it? Has anyone seen this on Twitter? Like people kind of talking shit about DCAing? Maybe it's just the beers hitting me, but that's fiat as fuck. Yeah. You know, if your unit of account is sats, it's going up. Yeah. It's, you're not down at all. You're continually graphing up to the right. So I don't know what they're talking about. There's no one in the space that can't honestly say that they lump some bot at the wrong time. Like it just happens. Sure. Like I did it. We've both done it. And I've also done the opposite. I've sold at the worst time. And I've taught myself this lesson time and time again. Like just sit tight and keep buying incrementally as you go. It is the best plan unless you actually are that one to one half percent good trader. And you're probably not, if you're going to be honest with yourself. Chris, end this with a handoff. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, if you guys want to follow what we're doing at Bitcoin Magazine, you can follow us on all platforms, you know, Twitter, YouTube, Rumble, you name it. Uh, my Twitter handle is Chris Alamo 6 uh, Alamo spelled A-L-A-I-M-O-6. Uh, make sure to check out Bitcoin Amsterdam next year. Bitcoin 2023 coming up next May. Hope I'll see both of you we'll gents there. there. I know yep. Josh, you were there, and we'll be there. I wasn't able to, to see you. I was so yeah. busy working. Uh, that was a it was a bummer. We'll definitely catch up next this next year. We'll be there, and we better get on Sailor's yacht. Okay, yeah. Michael, you hear that? Yeah, we're looking for those. Yeah. Uh, we'll punch our tickets, would you? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you can use code BM Live to get ten percent off your tickets, so you guys can use it or any of your listeners. And then also we've got Bitcoin Magazine great magazine, the censorship resistant issue. I'm really excited for the Orange Party issue that's dropping. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read Bukele's letter. It, it's uh, his letter that came out. We released it digitally, but it's going to be in the Orange Party issue. Basically, uh, long story short, it's fuck you to the IMF. He calls out a lot of people in the Western world for uh, saying what he's doing with Bitcoin. Uh, that's pretty much all I got for for that. Thanks, Dan and Josh, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You know, uh, it's been a blast being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. We enjoyed it. Our pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.